Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Rachel Ray made a last-minute Today Show appearance almost 20 years ago and was immediately signed by the Food Network and has been a household name ever since. As a celebrity among celebrities, her life still produces awkward moments, such as the time she invited her hero, Tony Bennett, and his wife, Susan, over for dinner. I go to pull the chair out. He goes to sit down in it. The chair falls out from behind him, and he hits his head on the marble counter. And I started screaming, Tony, Tony! And my husband, who's gone into the other room to check on the Sabuco for me, comes running, and, oh, my God! The only person calm in this whole situation is Susan. She's like, oh, he's fine. He'll pop right back up. <laughs> and, and dang if he didn't. <laughs> First up today, it's my interview with writer Brooke Jarvis, on the multi-million dollar launch of a new Apple, the Cosmic Crisp. Brooke, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, we're about to witness the, quote, largest launch of a produce item in American history. Yes, the Cosmic Crisp Apple, which is also known as WA38, which is the name under which it was developed. Now, this is a big change Recently, I gather in the apple growing business, it's a value-added apple. So what's a value-added apple? So there's kind of a new generation of apples that people might have noticed in their grocery stores, things like 
Envy or Jazz or Sweet Tango or Ludacris, but they have excellent names, um, that are apples that are proprietary managed brands. They're not something that just anybody can grow. They are often managed by cooperatives or companies or international consortiums that are very careful about the branding of the apple, about supply and demand, and just the entire marketing of it as a as a product in a way that the apples of not so long ago that we're familiar with, including the Red Delicious, but also things like Gala or, you know, a wine sap uh, were not managed in that way. So years ago, uh, there were thousands of varieties of just wild apples. How, how would farmers or scientists come up with new apple varieties? What was the process? The process of breeding apples is fairly simple, but what's interesting about it is that the plant doesn't breed true to the parent. So what you do is grafting instead of planting the seeds. Um, But yeah, as you say, like in the 19th century, some counts show that in the United States, people were growing 14,000 different varieties of apples. Really? Um, Mm. And then the story in the 20th century was very much standardization and consolidation. Here in Washington, the Washington State Apple Commission used to advertise using a poster that showed a stoplight. And there was one apple each in red, yellow, and green because, you know, that was all you needed. The way you would get a new hybrid, let's say, is you would cross-pollinate from one tree to another. Is that how they did it? Mm -hmm. And then uh, today, is that still how they do it? Or is there a more sophisticated way of crossbreeding? So at the the Washington State University breeding program, they get 10,000 new trees in a year, and each and every Mm. one of them is genetically distinct. And they plant them out and give them a few years to produce fruit and then taste that fruit. And from there, go back into the lab to do lots of detailed testing on the storage and starch levels and all kinds of details on the apples that, you know, appear to be the most likely to be successful. But it's um, it's still very much a melding of traditional biology and sophisticated lab work. But the problem is, unlike a fruit fly with a fairly short lifespan, it's going to take seven, eight years to start bearing fruit for an apple tree or something like that? It, yeah, it can be less than that. Um, but the process is long because you want to have multiple generations of fruit. You know, they'll start with just a few trees, and as it appears that the fruit is more successful, they'll have more trees, and so you have to wait for that generation. One of the people that I interviewed said, biology is just a real problem here, which is funny because an apple is a biological product, but it is also now becoming, you know, this product product of which different things are expected. You know, a friend of mine, he grows a lot of the old-fashioned varieties, and I have to say they have um, real apple flavor. And I find the newer varieties tend to be juicy or sweet, but they don't have complex flavor. Is, is that something by design um, that, that people don't want, you know, sort of a savoriness in an apple or depth of flavor? Because I find the new ones are just sweet. That's a good question. I mean, I've, I've certainly heard that same criticism from a lot of people, including apple growers, who are often frustrated by what the consumer likes. You know, the, the grower will get really attached to a certain apple and think that it has a lot of depth of flavor and it's going to be really successful. And then it it turns out not to be. You know, there, there are thousands of these heirloom varieties, but a supermarket is only going to stock so many right. commercial apples. So you have to appeal to a larger audience. 
So the goal is to dominate the Apple industry with this one brand of apples, Cosmic Crisp. Does this mean that people, that they want people to just turn to it as they would have, let's say, a Macintosh or a Granny Smith? It's one of those, it's the go-to Apple. Is that their goal, given the huge investment they put into the trees? They definitely want it to be a go-to Apple. And what you always hear people in the industry say is, I don't want people going to the grocery store and on their list it says apples. On their list it should say Cosmic Crisp. And they Mm. should, you know, look around the store and ask the salesperson until they find it. There's one person that I interviewed who works for the Washington State Tree Fruit Association who people are always asking him which apple is going to be the next Red Delicious. And what he always says is that, you know, you're sort of misunderstanding where the industry is right now. That's like asking what car is going to be the next Model T. I think there's a general expectation that you can't count on something dominating for very long anymore. Brooke, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure having you on Milk Street. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was Brooke Jarvis. Her article, The Launch, was published in the California Sunday Magazine. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, as well as the author of Home Cooking 101. So before we open up the phone lines, I just have a question. You cooked at La Tulipe, French restaurant in New York City, Manhattan. What is it that you did there that you've never done again, like a cooking technique or culinary trick that only worked in that restaurant? You've never repeated it. We used to make this smoked tongue and foie gras (laughs) pate. It was absolute killer. And I don't think I will ever make that again. You know, you would poach the tongue with all sorts of, uh, well, Sally Dar would poach it. And then we'd slice it on a meat slicer, paper thin. And it was my job to layer the uh, foie gras mousse in between the layers. It was absolutely killer. So that was a unique technique of Sally's. I don't think I will ever see it anywhere else, and I certainly will never do it again. Well, I think in the next issue, Milk Street will do tongue mousse. Uh, that's <laughs> tongue and foie gras mousse, and, and foie yes, gras layered. Mousse. Yeah, pretty right. good. You could do chicken liver mousse. Excellent idea. Just we'll keep that in mind. Thank you, Sarah. Yes. Time to take a call. Yes. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sylvia from Brooklyn. How are you? Oh, hi, Sylvia from Brooklyn. Well, how can we help you today? I have two girls, they're eight and five, and I pack them school lunches every day. And I just need some new ideas for school lunches, but we have some restrictions. I can't serve any meat or chicken when they go to a kosher school. So it needs to be dairy or parv, which means neutral. The school is peanut-free, nut-free, and sesame-free. Oh, dear. Okay. What do you got for me? What do they usually like? I mean, what, what yeah. have been hits? I send them bento boxes, and everything that they eat is room temperature because there's no way to heat it up. Right. So I make them mini quiches. I make them small individual pizzas, Jeez. like mini bagels with avocado spread. But I need stuff that's filling and healthy. Ooh. Well, how about like some veggie meatballs that you dip in tomato sauce? That has been a winner. How about more of a savory pancake like a zucchini latka or, you know, latka with other vegetables in it? I wouldn't even have to heat those up. I could just put them in the box straight. Exactly. My kids actually like grain bowls. I mean, you can have rice or a grain or whatever you want as the base and then put whatever you want in with it. 
Right. So Especially we do if that. You, you do that. The well, benzos okay. have five compartments. So I'll put the green in the biggest. Yeah, there you go. And the components in the other. You could do tortilla roll-ups. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking with too. With a vegetable filling. Yeah, the uh, problem is those are going to get soggy though if you're not careful. The other thing you could do is just a very very thin omelet and have that be the roll. Do a Spanish outside. tortilla, which is made in a sauté pan. It's just a very thick omelet with potatoes in it, but you it's can put anything potatoes. you want. Mostly potatoes. Mostly potatoes and have eggs. Have you frozen that? No. No, I don't think that would freeze so well. It only takes. Three I like minutes to, to make, make things in muffin cups and freeze oh, that's it. A good and idea. Just smart. That's one smart. cupcake in the tin. No, that's smart. Um, and you've tried all sorts of whole grain muffins with all sorts of healthy things in them, I assume. I've tried it, and they complain they're still hungry. How about smoked salmon? Do they eat lox? They love lox. Could you but do roll-ups? school because it smells. Oh. <laughs> and I can't blame them. How about like um, pasta frittata? Where you add yeah, pasta to like eggs that. and you bake that's it. That's a good one. That's a good They'll one. Eat that. Oh, you've already. Boy, you've you've really done. I this. think. Have you written a book about this? Almost. Yeah, I think you <laughs> should. That's a great book. The pasta frittata and the potato frittata are good options. I'm going to try small amounts and freeze them to see. You can make the thick, you know, multi-grain fruit bar thing. Those are wonderful, and you can just make a whole tray of those, and those last that's a long a good time. One. How about falafel? I mean, you can make. The chickpea batter for falafel takes Does that you have canned chickpeas. In it? You don't have to use tahini. That's just sauce. You could make a yogurt no, you, sauce. So you could scoop it out, fry it, and then freeze it. That I could try. How about with a garlicky yogurt dip? That I could try. And the yogurt's got some protein in yes, it. Yes, it does. I just had an idea, although they're probably not kosher, those rice paper wrappers. So they're kosher. Because you can stuff those with vegetables and maybe even tofu, you know, sauteed so tofu. So I do like baked marinated tofu and the vermicelli noodles and that shredded great. carrots and zucchini. Yeah, that works are you, are, nicely. I, wait, hold on a second. Are you a professional chef? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew it. I knew it. I, like Everything we mentioned, you already... She's like been there no, and done that. I, yeah, you're a Okay. Pro. Thank you. I'm going to let you know if any of these Please do. We like out. feedback. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. Thank you. We learned right. more than you did. Thanks for calling. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mike from Land Lakes, Florida. How can we help you? I have a question about cutting of vegetables. Okay. A couple of years ago, I had a visit to the doctor about my hand hurting, and the doctor said I had arthritis. He gave me some sort of a topical treatment or shot or something, and that fixed it for a while. But now I notice when I'm doing something intensive like cutting a bunch of vegetables, my hands start to hurt. I figured out to use the food processor since it was sitting there on the counter. And that works pretty well for the most part, but I have some questions about cutting up the onions. The first time I tried to chop up onions in the food processor, I ended up with effectively an onion smoothie with all this <laughs> liquid a in slushy, the bottom there. Yeah. And we noticed when we were eating whatever we cooked that night, it had a very funky, tangy, didn't belong there flavor to it. So I converted from the blade in the bottom of the food processor to the blade in the top of the food processor that chops them rather than grinds them into a smoothie. And then I started pouring off that excess onion juice, and that seemed to help quite a bit improve the flavor. What's the deal with that onion juice stuff, and why is it causing things to to come out tasting poorly? Well, the more you break down garlic or onion, there's enzyme activity and you release compounds 
And you're absolutely right. Onion juice, if you process it in a food processor, does have bitter compounds. Uh, and that's been actually studied in a lab. Now, I, oddly enough, make uh, a tomato sauce with grated onion, which I mm-hmm. really love. But the grated onion doesn't really release that much juice. So it's the juice. And when the juice sits around, it gets bitter. I do have a suggestion for you, though, about chopping vegetables. The Japanese mm-hmm. vegetable knives have thinner blades and they're sharper. And they also have handles that I think are easier. They have octagonal handles, a traditional Japanese knife. And when they chop vegetables, they slice them. You know, they slice through them. They don't chop the way the French do. So if you got a good Japanese mm-hmm. knife, it's a vegetable knife, like a nakiri, which looks like a Chinese cleaver except it's only two inches high – I find I use those knives for vegetables and my hands don't hurt and it's much, much less work. That's one thing. But you're right. The juice, onion juice is not a friend if you don't like bitter taste. Well, the more that you chop up an onion or rough it up, the more you develop those compounds. And last thing I found, I almost never finely chop an onion anymore. You can coarsely chop an onion for most recipes, soups and stews and that sort of thing. So... I was trained in the French method, which everything has to be exact, and the brunoise and this and that and the other thing. There are very few recipes where you need a very fine dice. So for most recipes, a coarse chop is fine, and that's much less work. Sarah is looking at me. I was saying it depends on how long it's in the recipe. If you're doing a quick saute yeah, and throwing different. some onions, then it should yes. be fine. But 90% of recipes, a coarse chop is fine. So yeah. anyway, thank you for calling. Okay, I Mike. hope that makes life easier. Yes. Well, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, my name's Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Maryland, in between Baltimore and D.C. Okay. How can we help you? Well, I had a very vigorous volunteer mystery plant show up in my garden this year, and I've been able to positively identify it as a purple shiso plant, and I had never heard of that before, and I thought it would be fun to ask you all what I might do with it, how I might make the best use of it. I think the first thing I want to know is, is it really shiso? Because <laughs> it turns out yeah. it's something very close but poisonous. So just I would, yeah, I would take no, a little I, taste um, for it. I checked with the extension service and actually the friend who had given me the clump of plants that it volunteered in. So, yes, I positively identified it as shiso. So. Um, it's like basil, I guess, except it has a stronger flavor and you could use it like that, fresh okay. on top of things as a wrap of some kind. Um, You could also make a pesto out of it. You could use some miso instead of pine nuts, you know, and making a pesto instead of the cheese. That might work. It's a strong basil. So it's a fresh herb and use it fresh. To me, it reminds me a tiny, it has a tiny bit of a licorice taste too. It's stronger than basil. Ah, It's in the mint family. But I agree with Chris. I think anywhere you use basil or mint, you could use it. A shiso mojito. Yeah, Sounds sh- good. You, there we are with cocktails uh, yeah. again. <laughs> you know, it's mostly in, you find it in Japanese dishes, but there's no reason you couldn't take it elsewhere. I like the idea of using it, pairing it with miso for a pesto. That sounds fun. Yeah, that would right. be really good, so. like on soba noodles right. or something. Yeah, yeah, that would work good. It's also yeah. nice with yeah. fish or with okay. some sort of a raw fish or raw oysters and a mignonette. 
But I would not eat okay. it on a boat with a goat or in the rain on a train. <laughs> if you're heading into Dr. Zeus territory. Can you here. tell that he has two little humans at home now? Right. Dr. Zeus is about my speed reading style. I, I think it would also be nice, like with to- yeah. raw tomatoes or with corn. That's a good idea. Yeah. That would be very good yeah. with a relish. Yeah. That's, that is that's a lovely excellent idea. idea. Thank you. Sarah, you're on top four oh, today. Okay, there we All go. Right, Nicely well, done. Kelly, thank you. Thank you. I have a lot of fun ideas. I appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, okay. pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's Rachel Ray. That's coming up right after this break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats, but... For me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Rachel Ray's career could be entitled A Star is Born. She filled in as a last-minute guest on the Today Show almost 20 years ago, driving through four feet of snow to get to New York for a segment with Al Roker. Food Network executives saw it, loved it, and immediately signed her on. And the rest is, of course, history. Her latest book, Rachel Ray 50, tells her story through autobiography and recipes. Rachel Ray, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Your new book, which I love, it has a little thing in it, and you say, quote, I'm a waitress at heart. And and that sort of stopped me for a second. So what exactly did you mean by that? So my mom worked in restaurants for 60 years, and my first memories in life are being on her hip in restaurants. So I don't know if it's part of my DNA, but certainly the way I was raised, it's very ingrained in me. Um, Pleasing people feels good, and it's part of my role on the planet. I like to give people what they're expecting, and to surprise them by surpassing that. And to me, that's that's a, what a good server does. So when I say I'm a waitress, I, I take that seriously, and I think it's a compliment to be a very good server. It means that you're being compassionate to the people in your community or in the room, um, and it's it's my motivation. You also said your mother used eclairs as a pressure valve. That's the first time I've heard something like that. 
Yeah, well, and you could also use it to um, see how bad the situation was going to, to go for you. If my mother was a little upset with one of the three of us, first of all, if my mother is upset with one of her children, she's upset with all three of them. It doesn't matter the age. When my brother was a baby, if if my sister or myself did something wrong, all three of us were rotten children. Like, she has to keep it even. And you could tell how bad whatever the thing was that we did based on how large the box from the bakery. One eclair, you know, okay, it's not going to be pleasant, but in half an hour we'll all be laughing, and in an hour it'll be forgotten and we'll all be eating spaghetti. Anything over two... We were petrified. My mom used eclairs to to calm herself down. She loved pastry cream and dark chocolate. And it's very funny. I don't love to bake, but one thing I learned how to master beautifully is the profiterole and how to make my mother eclairs <laughs> for, for any situation that I deem necessary or <laughs> just for her birthday or Mother's Day. <laughs> Learn quickly. Uh, let's just do a quick recap of s- some of the highlights of your career. You were... Started out with a Today Show appearance with Al Roker doing a snowstorm, and then soon after, the Food Network snapped you up. I didn't know this. You said that during the taping of your pilot on Emerald Set, uh, you started a small fire. Um, it was actually quite a large fire. It, it, it was a it, well, it was like a good six, seven foot flame out of oh. the pan. <laughs> and, but 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 they still you you on and say quote. The brass there had faith and hired me even despite the fire. That's, that's good. good. That's right? good, right? They took it really well. Yeah, that's good. What happened was I was so nervous, I just kept asking questions, and I've never worked with any sort of assistance whatsoever. So the pre-pro team had been preheating my pan for like an hour, oh. and I had no idea. So, of course, the second I put oil into the pan, whoosh, like this huge flame shoots up. <laughs> and they told me, don't stop the camera. That's not your job, not for any reason. So I'm chucking salt. I'm throwing sheep hands. <laughs> I'm trying to save Emerald set. And I'm like, shortest career in Food Network history. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't I don't think I told you this, but I did start a fire on the Today Show set. Once, oh, that's but, fabulous. Uh, they did have See, me See, they think that uh, that's great TV. <laughs> uh, you had a great story in your book about your estate dinner visit at the White House. Oh, my uh, God. Which, which was... Kind of disastrous or near disastrous? I'm only comfortable telling stories about myself that make people laugh or make them understand (laughs) that we're all human and life never gets easier or less awkward than your most awkward day in high school. The state (laughs) dinner, I love the Obamas very much. I've known them since uh, well before they were in the White House. And um, uh, Mrs. Obama, Michelle Obama's initiatives were very closely aligned with my own, improving the quality of school food, and eradicating hunger and lowering childhood obesity rates. So we get invited to the last state dinner at the White House, and I uh, picked a dress that I thought was great. It was October. Unfortunately, it was unseasonably warm. It was in the mid-'80s, and I was wearing a dress with a black turtleneck attached to the skirt and had no other choice but to wear this (laughs) giant autumnal ball gown (laughs) with many, many layers. So I was melting, and... A river runs through it, like just sweat, just everywhere. Thank God it's at least black. My hair fell within like three minutes, and it was hours before. There's all these lines you have to go through and, you know, security and all that. And I'm walking up the steps, and I shove my shoe. I'm very bad at walking in high heels. 
through the underpinnings of the dress and it gets the giant heel gets all tangled and caught up in it and I start to panic and I make it worse so it ends up looking like almost like a wasp's nest or a hornet's nest wrapped around my right foot it was so bad by the time I got myself to the check-in desk the woman behind the desk had to literally go to an office, take scissors, and come out while the people are getting checked in. I'm the entryway of the White House, and they are cutting my dress apart that I probably haven't even paid for yet. They're cutting the dress off of my shoe so that I can continue to walk. So that happens. Things really got and then from there. a couple hours later, we finally are in the big room, and everybody's finally sitting down to the big state dinner. They walk us over to our seats. I'm seated at the head table next to the first lady. <laughs> and I'm trying to whisper to her girlfriend, a girlfriend, a little bit of what happened. And she's like, You get no pity from me. This dress weighs 20 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you all saw your last story. You almost killed Tony Bennett one evening. Who was your oh hero? Oh my God! And he told me I could tell people as long as I made sure to make it clear it was completely my fault. <laughs> and I'm such an enormous Tony Bennett fan my whole life. I have a talk show and I get to meet Tony Bennett. Like I just couldn't believe it was even happening. And then he and his lovely wife Susan said, "Why don't we all get together some night and have dinner?" So they come over. I'm feeding Tony Bennett. I'm so excited. Like this is such a big deal. I have my floors polished for the first time ever because I live with a 65-pound pit bull, so why bother making the floors extra shiny? She just scratches them up all day, right? And I have the hors d'oeuvres and the champagne in one room on these hardwood floors. And in the opposite room, I'm setting the table for our, our dinner. So I take Tony Bennett up to the other room and Susan, and I, my husband pours them their uh, bubbly and I'm explaining all the snacks. And Tony, it looks like he's looking around for a chair. He wants to sit down. So he's holding his, his champagne. He takes a sip. I go to pull the chair out. He goes to sit down in it. The chair falls out from behind him. And he hits his head on the marble counter and drops to the floor. And I start screaming, Tony, Tony. And my husband, who's gone into the other room to check on Osabuco for me, comes running in. Oh, my God. The only person calm in this whole situation is Susan. She's like, oh, he's fine. He'll pop right back up. <laughs> and, and dang, if he didn't. He ate more than everybody. He laughed. He shook it right off. He popped right up. I love Tony Bennett, and we've been great friends um, for, for many years. And I, I'm really grateful I didn't kill him. <laughs> Um, you also talk about being at your home south of Lake George, and you talk, this is my favorite line of the book, quote, I iron all the pillowcases and top sheets. <laughs> now, you don't like ironing, but I mean, that's... I dislike it yeah, intensely. Well, I, I don't think anybody in my household's ever ironed a sheet. But the, my point being that you you feed the people, you cook, you do the cleaning, um, you, you don't live the, the, the lifestyle someone might think you do. On, when you're not on the show. I like that work, um, and, and it's always made me feel very happy. It makes my home feel like just that, my home. I don't want it to look perfect. I just want it to look welcoming. And I like th the discipline of ironing. I don't enjoy ironing itself. I don't like hot. And the steam comes up in your face, and it is monotonous. It freaks the dog out. She doesn't like the hiss of the steam. 
But I iron because it feels good when I'm done and I make a bed with nice pillowcases. And it, you just can't wait to jump into it, you know, like it's a big pile of fall leaves or something. I love that feeling. So in order to get that feeling, you have to do the job. You mentioned your notebooks a lot because you, you use them constantly. And, and you were quite miffed, I think is the right word, when the New York Times said that you didn't write your own cookbooks. But oh, yet, I yet, lost yet, it. yet it was all, all there in your notebooks. You know, the New York Times piece, they asked me, what do I think about food stylists? I said, I love them. My friend Wes makes things look messy for me and does all my books because if I can't be there cooking it, I want it to look like I did it. That doesn't mean that I let other people write my my books and things for me. Wes did actually write some beautiful gluten-free desserts for me, but because I hate gluten-free and I hate to bake, and he got proper credit. You know, that was just like, a, okay, that kind of stinks. People don't think that I put the work in. But I think we misconstrued each other. You, you are a person who believes deeply in kindness. And yet, in the last 20 years, the world, from my perspective, seems a little less kind. Maybe social media, maybe the, the press in general. How do you reconcile that? Because kindness is so important to you. Uh, you can only pay attention to the positive. My grandfather taught me as a little girl. And I always think lesser of people that come to me and say things just to be provocative or perpetuate negative feelings between people. I just don't understand the purpose of that. Not everybody's going to like everybody on the playground. There was a whole website called I Hate Rachel Ray for years, and they were <laughs> devoted watchers and viewers. You know, I mean, great. Not everybody's going to like you, and, and that's okay by me. Of course, I vent when I go home at the end of the day to my husband, to my dog, and you get it out of your system and you let it go. I really do believe that the love you give is equal to the love you take. I mean, you, you have to put good out to receive good back. Well, I don't think I know anybody who's put more good out there than you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. That means a lot. Rachel, thank you for being in Milk Street. It's uh, been a pleasure having you. It's an honor. It really is. That was Rachel Ray. Her latest book is Rachel Ray 50, Memories and Meals from a Sweet and Savory Life. Rachel Ray just turned 50, and so is Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Lopez, Edward Norton, and Jack Black. Of course, none of them look 50. Maybe that's why they're celebrities. Celebrities who just turned 70 include Meryl Streep, Richard Gere, Bruce Springsteen, and Jeff Bridges. They also don't look their age. And by the way, an amazing number of celebrities have lived to be 100, including Bob Hope, Irving Berlin, and George Burns. So to live long, you don't have to eat well or exercise. You just have to be a celebrity. Fame, fortune, and a long life. Some people just have it all. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, fregola with herbs and pecorino. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, as usual, you've been on the road. I have. Uh, you just got back from Sardinia, which is sort of the more rustic, if that's possible, version of Sicily. I yeah. Guess. Less yeah. traveled. Very much so. It's uh, an island off the western coast of Italy. And the fascinating part about Sardinia is that the cuisine evolved despite, not because of, the sea and the seafood around it. Uh, many centuries of invaders drove the local population inland, where their cuisine evolved based on grains and produce and meat and dairy. And so seafood is actually only a recent contribution to the cuisine. Sort of like going to the Caribbean, you can't get fresh fish. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar. Very so, 
you <laughs> so you didn't come back with a fish recipe. No. <laughs> you came back with a fregola recipe. So let's just start. What is fregola? All right. Fregola is simply the easiest pasta to make at home. I, I couldn't believe it. It's, it's little nuggets, pellets of pasta that are made very similar to couscous, actually. The difference between fregola and couscous is that after the fregola is dried, it's then toasted. And that means that when you cook it up, it has a very chewy, tender, meaty texture. And in addition to that, and this is a technique that we love at Milk Street, fregola is almost always cooked in the sauce, and so it absorbs so much more flavor than a typical pasta boiled in water. You made the mistake of mentioning couscous. I remember Paula Wolfert's first book back in the 70s. You took three days to make couscous. <laughs> so, and now you said the simplest pasta. So why is it so simple to make? You can make it in about five or ten minutes, like actual <laughs> hands-on time, and you need no special equipment at all. You take a bowl. You take your semolina flour. You put it in the bowl. You sprinkle some <laughs> water in it, <laughs> and you rub your fingers around in it in kind of a circular motion, huh. and it clumps together. That's it. That's fregola. Or you could buy it. Or you could buy it, yes. And actually, we give it cheap because semolina flour is a little hard to find in the U.S., so if you don't feel like making your own, even though it is very simple, you can actually buy the pearl couscous and toast it yourself. And it's very similar to real fregola. So what did you do with it? So I had it any number of ways, and believe it or not, there is a seafood fregola, but the more authentic fregola is actually based on fresh herbs, tons and tons of fresh herbs, a little guanciale, and what was really fascinating. And, and guanciale is pork chow. Yes, right? exactly. Although we use pancetta because it's a little bit easier to find here. And what was fascinating to me is that they cooked it much in the style of a risotto. They put the fregola in the pan with these other ingredients and they keep adding liquid and they keep stirring and keep adding liquid and keep stirring. And eventually those little nuggets are plump and chewy hmm. and tender and a little bit meaty and really flavorful because again, all those other ingredients have cooked into the fregola. You know what amazes me is when you travel through, let's say, Europe, there's still all these recipes that we don't really know here. Oh, it's fascinating. You, you think by now we would have sort of run the gamut. Right. But this is fregola with herbs and pecorino, the recipe, is something I've never really had before. You know, you go into these little villages, and every time you turn around, there's something we've never seen before, never heard of, that is just commonplace there. So, thank you. You went to Sardinia, came back with a recipe for fregola with herbs and pecorino. You can make it yourself or use pearl couscous. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Fregola with herbs and pecorino at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Aaron Carroll reveals the health effects of everyone's favorite indulgence. That would be chocolate. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, You'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking more of your culinary questions.
Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Allison. Allison, where are you calling from? Idaho. Oh, nice. How can we help you today? Okay, so I have a question. We have some friends who are Romanian, and they had a dinner party, and they served traditional, though vegetarian version, of the stuffed cabbage rolls. And um, they were totally different than any other cabbage rolls that I've ever had. And they told me that they usually pickle or do something with their whole cabbage heads. And I'd never heard of that before. And I thought it was really cool. And I thought, well, that would be really fun to try and make. But it's really hard to find pickled cabbage heads. And I thought, well, I wonder if I could put in sauerkraut or something to kind of mimic just that little bit of a tang that was with them. But I couldn't find anything online that would answer that question. So I thought I would ask you guys. Well, first of all, let me ask you a question. So for these stuffed cabbage rolls, was the cabbage itself pickled? The roll part that had the stuffing in it? I mean, where was the pickled cabbage? So they take the whole cabbage head and they core it out and they put it in a brine. in their Like they did it themselves in buckets and then they let it pickle like in a cool place, like in a garage or something like right. that. The whole cabbage head is pickled, and then they roll the filling, and then I think they actually cook theirs over a fire because there's a little bit of that smoky hint to it. Okay, and then the stuffing, what did they use for the stuffing? You know, I don't know. I'm assuming that it was some type, you know how there's like the Beyond Meat burger type stuff? yeah. And um, rice in it, too. Okay. The unique flavor was that cabbage head because it was just a little bit pickled, and it was so good. This kind of cabbage dish is like, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, Bulgarian sort of thing, that there was this website called Balkan Fresh. So I would check that out because it sounds like you don't want to make your own. Chris, is that the sort of thing you would make, a whole? There are two ways to pickle. One is fermentation, which is salt and water. Yeah. And that's what they're doing here. They're taking Mm -hmm. heads of cabbage, putting a barrel, putting in some seasonings, if you like, Mm -hmm. obviously a brine making sure that's submerged, you know, covering with some weights and letting it sit. Usually it's a good 30 to 40 days. I mean, it's a lot of work and it's Well, if you did aromatic. 10 cabbage heads, you'd be ahead of the game. But you can also pickle <laughs> overnight, which is sugar, water, and salt and flavorings. And that's only... You wouldn't do a whole cabbage no, you, head. You, you, you would, would do take leaves. the leaves and you could do that overnight. And that would pickle the cabbage Would you blanch okay. them and then put them in that mixture, or would you just put them in that mixture raw? Well, if you're going to wrap and do cabbage rolls, stuffed cabbage, you would not blanch it first, I don't think. I would just let it sit in the... Sit in the mixture. Yeah, and then that would be done the next day. That's an interesting idea. I, sauerkraut won't work because it's already shredded. I think, actually, I'm going to go right. home and buy some heads of cabbage. I think the idea of doing whole heads of cabbage that are cored is very simple. You just need a big barrel. And throw in some chilies and some well, chilies would be nice. juniper. Or but you, you know, it's mm, mm. okay, Chris. You go. So you're going to do then, some homework, and you're going to come back month, and report. Yeah, <laughs> next time we record, I'll bring in you uh, oh, right. a pickled cabbage head. But in the meanwhile, Allison, I would go for his quick pickle, yeah. or go check out Balkan Fresh and see if they have the frozen sour cabbage head. Either way, you do it. If you do it, just make sure it's fully submerged. Yeah. And keep it in a cool, okay. dry place. Yes. Right? Okay. okay. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Yes, Alice. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Patricia from Philadelphia. Hi, Patricia from Philadelphia. What can we do for you today? I have some yeast questions. So it concerns instant yeast versus regular yeast. Right. Normally, I always have regular yeast around, and then I will read this recipe that looks interesting, and it's calling for instant yeast. So my first question is, 
why does a recipe writer ever choose instant yeast? And that sounds stupid. I know it's like, duh, because it's faster. But my second question is, if I run across one of these recipes and all I have at home is the regular, is there some sort of algorithm of, you know, using a little more or giving it more time that would allow me to substitute the regular for the instant? Yes. Uh, oh, cool. We can answer all of your, <laughs> most of your yeast questions. First of all, regular active yeast has a lot of dead yeast cells around the outside of the granules, and that's why you oh. have to proof it first in some warm water to, to activate it, it because yeah. otherwise it'll take too long. The reason people call for instant or rapid rise is those dead yeast cells are not on the outside, and therefore you can actually just add the yeast directly to the flour, the dry ingredients. You don't even have to proof it. So it just removes that step. So that's why people call for it. Secondly, you can substitute active dry for instant yeast or vice versa, one for one. Yeah. Uh, It's not a problem. Teaspoon for teaspoon. But active dry yeast, you need 10 minutes of pre-proofing in 110 or 20 degree water, not hotter than that. But you can use it one for one. It's not a problem. It may take a little longer Uh for the bread to rise, a little extra, maybe 20%, 25%, but it'll be fine. That is such good news because I hate looking at a recipe and thinking, oh, but I'm going to go buy the rapid rice yeast. You know, once you run out of your supply of active dry yeast, you might Uh want to consider getting from King Arthur Flour, their label SAF, which is the instant yeast. And they tell you to just keep it in the freezer and then you just got it all the time. You save money. You don't buy those little packages. If it has, as Chris said, more little granules of yeast that are alive than the active dry yeast. Great. Okay. Well, I'll go get that too. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me uh, talk to you. I love Pleasure. the show and I love this section of the show, the best of all. Of course, it's the best. It's always similar. What Chris does without <laughs> me is just yeah. useless, I know. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Oh, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for one of our listeners who will reveal their best culinary hack. Hi, my name is Hannah, and I'm calling with a cooking tip about baking. When I'm baking, I generally like to replace some of the dairy or some of the oil with either sour cream or yogurt. And then I like to add half a teaspoon extra of baking soda, and it makes it really moist, a little bit tangy, and it always also gives a good rise. To share your cooking tips on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's hear from regular contributor Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Aaron Carroll, welcome back to Milk Street. Always a pleasure. And uh, what is on your mind this week? I thought we might talk about chocolate and how it's not nearly the health food that a lot of recent media has made it out to be. Oh, boy, really? (laughs) Well, it's so funny because I I feel like most of the time I come on to try to tell us that stuff that the media is trying to scare us out of isn't as as bad as they say. In this case, unfortunately, I'm I'm here to talk us down the other direction to say it's not as good as they're saying. I mean, come on. It's chocolate. It's candy. It's not healthy. Well, okay, but my wife's a health nut. And uh, from time to time, I investigate the pantry, right, to see what strange Mm -hmm. things she's bought recently. And the chia seeds, and they're cacao nibs, right? So those are very much part of the sort of, you know, wellness diet, 
outright cacao. So, I mean, first of all, it's important to understand that what literature, medical literature exists, is often looking at specific components, specifically cocoflavanols. And there have been some studies which show that if you get a certain dose of cocoflavanols, that it might lead to slight reductions in blood pressure because they have an effect on blood vessels like nitrates do. And we often you know, you hear people get treated with nitrates when they have a heart attack. It opens blood vessels. It allows... Um, for more blood to get where you need it to be, uh, and that will also lower blood pressure. But if you if you look at sort of the dose in some of these studies, you'd have to eat about four and a half ounces of dark chocolate to get that dose of flavanols. That's like 750 calories. If you're eating milk chocolate, you'd have to consume about 40 ounces or about 5,800 calories in order to get the dose. That's not healthy. But so much of the research that has been done uh, to promote chocolate has been funded by the chocolate industry. There's like the Mars Center for Nutritional Studies. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm butchering the name a little bit, but it's along those lines. The vast majority of research is done by industry and the almost all of it is positive, which leads us to believe that they're probably publishing the positive studies and burying the negative studies. Because of course, that's how research works. Some, almost nothing is universally positive in that way. So let me stop you for a second. So when the industry does these studies, which they all do, they do, let's say they do 20 studies, 12 of them are not uh, supportive of their product, and those get dumped in the circular file somewhere. Correct. And the the eight that actually show some promise and support get sent out on the PR newswire. Right. And we see this with pharmaceuticals and drugs. This isn't just the food industry that's guilty of this, but at least studies of drugs have to be registered with the FDA. So we can go in and look at which studies do and do not get published. With respect to, you know, studies funded by the Mars Center for Cocoa Health Science, we have no idea how many studies they've done um, and then which they actually choose to publish or not. But when we see almost all or all of them as being positive, you start to question things. We've also seen lots of evidence that they will do what we call outcome switching, where they will initially say that they are they were looking for one thing, let's say low blood pressure. But then when that doesn't turn out to be positive, they look at other things to try to find something that turns positive, maybe mood. And then they'll publish just the mood study. And of course, if you check enough things you will find something to be positive. There was a journalist uh, just a couple years ago who actually conducted a fake study of chocolate in an effort to show how this could be done. So he he rounded up some people. He got half of them to take chocolate or flavanols and half of them not to. Then they did tons and tons of statistics to try to find one thing that turned out positive. Mm-hmm. Then they published it in a predatory journal. They sent out press releases all over the country and all over the world for that matter, you know, about how they showed that chocolate improves memories and news media all over the world picked it up and ran with this. Hmm. They actually covered and said, chocolate has been proven to do this. And, and the guy was just sitting, I mean, I don't think he even thought it would go this far. And then something like a year later, he actually came out and, and talked about it. And of course, lots of people got very angry and said, that's fake science. You're destroying science. But 
you know, they actually use the same tools and techniques that a lot of these companies and scientists will to try to find positive associations or positive outcomes to promote an agenda rather than looking at, at true science. So, so you would you'd have a control group and, and a regular group. One of mm-hmm. them would get the chocolate or flavonoids, one wouldn't. And then you'd measure, let's say, 20 different health aspects, mood, et cetera, among these groups. And if yep. you measure that number of variables, you're bound to find one or two that occurred exactly. in the group eating the chocolate versus the group that didn't, right? That's exactly correct. And so that's exactly what they did. And they did it over and over. And then if you f- you just publish on the one positive result, and this happens in all kinds of food studies, pick almost any outcome you can think of, you can probably find a chocolate study which shows that, that it really will work. But chocolate is candy. Uh, and while it's, it's okay to have once in a while, and I'm not going to demonize it in that respect, no one should be under the illusion that chocolate, especially as you eat it, not not some of the ingredients in there, but chocolate as you consume it is going to be something that's going to help you more than it's going to hurt you. Of course, you know, it's always nice for mood and it makes people happy. And if it's dessert, that's great, but it's not a health food. So in other words, do you have to eat so much chocolate to get any potential benefit that you'd be eating, you know, a thousand calories of chocolate to yeah, get enough flavonoids. So the answer is eat chocolate. It may make you happy, but it's not going to necessarily make you any healthier. Correct. And treat it just like it is. It's something extra. It's dessert. It's chocolate. It's not health food. And next time, please come back and tell me why bourbon's good for me, okay? <laughs> I will do that. Absolutely. I promise. <laughs> Dr. Carroll, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Earlier in the show, I spoke to Brooke Jarvis about the Cosmic Crisp Apple. You know, the Cosmic Crisp is being launched with a $10 million marketing budget, so we've gone from a world with thousands of varieties to just a few. A market economy is supposed to deliver choice, but in the world of food, it seems to be delivering corporate consolidation. So I'll just keep picking my apples from trees I find in the Vermont woods. They may have scabs and scars, but as Vermonters like to say, they're their own apple. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, Watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsaboff. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubeup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.